Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I talk to James R. Stoner, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Eric Vogelin Institute at Louisiana State University. Jim is a political theorist and an expert on the English common law and American constitution. We discuss the British influence on the American constitutional tradition and the distinctiveness of American democracy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. We were talking briefly before we got started about the fact that I'm from New Zealand. You detected my New Zealand accent. No, you'd been alerted to my New Zealand accent. I'd been alerted to it, yes. So you couldn't... I couldn't understand. You couldn't make them... But you also couldn't make the major faux pas of asserting that I was Australian. I do know that that's a faux pas. It is a, a minor faux pas. A minor faux pas. Because of my background coming from one of the, I guess, former British colonies... When I was reading about your research and about your career, I was extremely interested in your work on British constitutionalism, the tradition of the British constitution and how it relates to the American constitution and American democracy. Now, there's a little bit more to my interest, which is that I myself study transitions to democracy, especially historical transitions to democracy. So I've studied transition to democracy in Germany in quite a lot of depth, you know, um, or lack thereof before World War I. I've also studied to some extent the transition to democracy in Britain, which was much more gradual than in Germany. Britain is held up always as being this, you know, shining example of steady constitutional reform, gradual reform and extensions of the suffrage through the 19th century and much, much before that lead to democratization. Whereas America, of course, as you say in one of your pieces on the Magna Carta, it doesn't have a undemocratic prehistory, or at least in many ways America's history begins with this kind of democratic thought. So I'm really interested in asking you more about, firstly, how much of an inheritance does the American constitution have from British constitutional traditions. How, how British, I guess, or English, depending on how you see it, is the American Constitution, actually? That's a great question. I'm glad you switched at the end and said English, because the Americans only would have said that. They wouldn't have spoken of the hmm. British Constitution, I don't think. Interesting. Uh, in part because their interest was the common law element. And of mm-hmm. course, once you add in Scotland, Scotland's a civil law country, mm-hmm. right? And so, but the common law, that's English. And although there were plenty of Scots, especially mm-hmm. up in the hills in North Carolina, uh-huh. right, and in general in the Appalachians, mm-hmm. it was always England. It was the English Constitution. It was English common law. And it's significant in this way that the Americans seem to see this movement from England to Britain mm-hmm. and from Britain to imperial Britain. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Uh, interesting. And uh, so when they speak of the common law, they see it not always as radically as Demo- as uh, Jefferson did, as a return to a Saxon, an ancient Saxon democratic past, uh-huh. but they do see it as embodying the liberty of all free men. And in fact, the Magna Carta even has a little footnote, so to speak, that says men and women <laughs> at oh, does one it point. Really? Oh, yeah. And, Interesting. And, and it starts off, uh, I mean, after the mention of the freedom of the church with uh, concern for widows and uh, mm-hmm. what's happening to the property of widows and things mm-hmm. of that sort. So it's actually a very, I don't know if anyone's ever done a good feminist analysis of uh-huh. uh, Magna Carta, but the issues are there. But in any event, for the Americans, they see the sort of growth of British imperialism mm-hmm. 
in the 18th century, the sort of strong notion of sovereignty of parliament Mm -hmm. as a kind of imperial sovereignty. Hmm. And Blackstone's actually kind of clear on that at the end of his introductory chapters. And they want the rest of Blackstone and not that. <laughs> they Blackstone, want, this being the history of British common law, or this very well, well, widely so, used text on British right, or English so, common law. Exactly. So Blackstone gives a series of lectures mm-hmm. at Oxford. He's the first professor of English law at uh-huh. Oxford. Up until then, the only thing studied at the university was civil law and mm-hmm. canon law, I mean, in relation to that. And then English law, common law, was studied at the ends of court. Right. And, and it was through apprenticeships that it was learned. It was not academic in that way. It was very much practical. The Americans even picked that up. You know, uh, American law schools don't come until quite a bit later. Occasionally, there's a lecturer on law, but usually he gives a year of lectures and then nobody, you know, everybody's heard him and they're not going to pay for more. Uh-huh. <laughs> so off they go. It's quite a while before the Americans really develop legal education, not until after the Civil War. But they use Blackstone. Blackstone's mm-hmm. lectures get printed and... They sell more copies on this side of the Atlantic than on the other side. This is the, I'm sorry, this side being in the United States. Right. As and this is the pre-revolutionary period. This is right, right before. He, he, uh, he starts lecturing in the 1750s. The publication is between, it's four volumes, 1765 through 69, as I hmm. recall. And it immediately becomes this bestseller because hmm. this way you've got the common law in a book. Common law is unwritten law. Right. Right. It's unwritten law. It's customary law or customary law as it's been recognized in court. Through precedent. And therefore, right, the evidence of common law is the precedence Mm -hmm. in court, how cases have been decided in the past. So suddenly now we have this great sort of summary of what that is, this handy summary that can be shipped across the ocean and And affordable. Yeah, it becomes a bestseller. I mean, it's, I yeah. mean, very similar today where, yeah. you know, treatises on law and political science are also bestsellers. Right? <laughs> They're by law professors. I don't know. You know. But, I mean, um, it's kind of remarkable yeah. in a way, isn't it, yeah. to think about this pre-revolutionary American society that the whole, I guess, literate class was so consumed by questions of constitutional reform and things like this that they would buy this book in droves. I mean, it's... Burke is good on this. Burke's speech on the... I think it's called the speech on conciliation with the colonies. Mm -hmm. Of course, it doesn't happen, (laughs) but uh, Burke loses that one too. But he has a great passage in there where he says, you've got to understand these Americans. They are law crazy. (laughs) I mean, in other words, (laughs) they think of everything in terms of rights and of law. It's just the mindset that they have. And I guess that's practical enough as they're trying to settle these colonies and, right, it's a very and this new concern. land. And absolutely. Now, of course, what also serves as law are the verdicts of juries. Mm-hmm. There's a book by a scholar named William Nelson, which is probably 50 years old now, but still the standard work on it called The Americanization of the Common Law. And what he did was dig deep into the records of Massachusetts, because Massachusetts wrote things down. Mm-hmm. You know, the old Puritans were writing things mm-hmm. down. Other places, not such thorough records. But apparently the juries decided law and fact, because they knew the law better than the judges, or huh. they certainly trusted it better than the judges, because the judges might have been appointed by the governor, who was appointed by the king. And there was already a bit of skepticism right. about this. And I think Tocqueville says somewhere that democracy in America rises out of the jury, and it reflects the whole customary character of common law. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to say that today for most of us, and, and probably almost every textbook, right, law is what? Well, law is 
the decree of the sovereign, right? Or with the policy established by the government, we might say, to soften it. But Mm -hmm. it's basically Thomas Hobbes' definition Mm -hmm. of law. Law is the command of the sovereign. The alternative paradigm is that law is the community's sense of right and wrong. And that's what common law is. And if that is, well, you have to test it before a jury. And that's what the common law required, right? That before anyone could be punished for a crime, that is, say, have his life, liberty, or property taken away, Mm -hmm. he had a hearing before a jury of his peers. And so the American literary class, the educated Americans in the pre-revolutionary era were very influenced by this account of British common law, compilation of I, British common I law think so. proceedings. And, and yet what's so curious about it is that Blackstone, <laughs> you know, is he a Whig or a Tory? It's kind of controversial in America, where, which he is. Mm-hmm. Jefferson considered him a Tory. Mm-hmm. He speaks at one point about um, what he called uh, the honeyed Mansfieldism of uh, Blackstone, because he was close to Chief Justice Mansfield, Lord Mansfield, uh, William Murray, in England in the 1770s, and is credited with the modernization of common law and commercial matters, Mm -hmm. and of course is also very famous for his 1772 case of Somerset v. Stewart, where he said that anyone who is enslaved anywhere else in the world, if he puts his foot on English soil, he becomes free. And because slavery is unknown at common law. And common law is the law of the land, so it goes with the soil. You know, the Americans picked and chose out of Blackstone. But when you read the beginning of Blackstone, after you get past the introductory chapter, which are important, Mm -hmm. describing what customary law is, he then starts with the liberty of individuals, what he calls the absolute rights of individuals. And guess what they are? Life, liberty, and property, Right. (laughs) right? And then there are the auxiliary rights, which is the right to, let's see if I can get these right, the right to... um, petition, the right to your day in court, and the right to bear arms. <laughs> and so all of these things are right there, easily recognizable today. I love to teach them to students because you can kind of see where the Bill of Rights comes from, and this is the tradition in which it came. I mean, mm-hmm. the interesting thing about the American Constitution is it's a written constitution in contrast to the British, right, of course. but it's written in this tradition of unwritten law. The revolution does not upset the common law. The revolution was to protect their property and to hmm. protect the rights as they were established. And, of course, the marriages and the family law, I mean, all of that, all of that was continuous. Now, you have Which to change some quite the kind of interesting uh, irony to, yeah. for them to maintain the continuity in these basic institutions of private property and well, all these things, despite having this revolutionary urge. It means well, their well, revolutionary see, urge compared to, say, the Bolsheviks in Russia or the French revolutionaries well, or the was, French. was very narrow. Was, it was narrower, their revolutionary goals. Uh, actually, a good bit of the revolutionary dispute is what they saw as threats to the common law and to the common law and to the rights and liberties that they held under common law. You know, the middle of the declaration is about all the violations of the English, the old, you know, unwritten constitution of England and common law procedure and process and these taking away juries. That's a huge thing for the Americans. Interesting. And so in a sense, that's that sort of conservative side of the American revolution. It has a radical side and it has a conservative Mm -hmm. side. And once you realize this kind of mixed character of it, it makes sense of an awful lot of things. Mm. The state of British, sorry, English democracy at the time of the American Revolution was much less advanced than American democracy, right? I mean, what share of the population of of England could vote 
for for Parliament, it must have been one percent, maybe a fraction of one percent. Well, right, or they something. they would have had a, a high property qualification right. for voting for the lower house of Parliament, mm-hmm. the upper house, uh, the House of Lords. Of course, was not elected. Right. And this was a radical change, right? The, to enfranchise essentially all adult American males for congressional elections, etc. At the moment of the American Revolution. Oh well, it doesn't the the universal enfranchisement doesn't come till a little later. You still have freehold. Enfranchisement, just property is much more widely distributed ah, because it's a colonial society, and so it is everybody's much more having similar to the British. Well, at quo. first, at least Virginia, Virginia thinks of itself otherwise as the real England. Now, New England calls itself New England, mm-hmm. but it's also the New England, and they never had entail and primogenitor or all sorts of parts of common law, land law. Mm-hmm. They simply had fee simple, I think it was called, and. Uh, passed it along in that way. They were making their own laws. Some Actually, the early laws in New England, and again, I don't know if anybody's really worked this out, the full reception of the common law in New England doesn't mm-hmm. come till, I think, the late 17th, early 18th century. There is this revolutionary moment. There's some divergence. Obviously, the yeah. president is elected while the king is not. The Senate, the upper house, is elected in U.S., whereas the House of Lords is not. I did not know about the property qualifications around uh, yeah. enfranchisement in the early United States. And office holding sometimes. That, that States varied on that. Interesting. And what happens is I think they all had some property qualification mm-hmm. at the beginning. But by the 1820s, this is what Jacksonian kind of revolution is about, is that uh, uh, the property qualifications disappear. The Mm -hmm. best debate on this took place in New York. There's a a fellow not otherwise much known, but his remarks were recorded, and there's a nice volume that that collects them and makes them available in textbook form. Uh, I think his name's something like David Buell, B-U-E-L, or something like that. Not other No one would list him on a list of great Americans. Yet he makes this great argument for universal suffrage and defeats, in the argument, Chancellor Kent, who's the great hmm. authority on common law in New York and therefore in the United States. Kent's influence still grows, and yet on this particular point, they go with this fellow Buell. And what he says is, look, even though... He accepts the authority that only someone with property really has a stake in society and is uh, mature enough to vote and isn't going to just try to take other people's property, right. by out of, even if it's out of his necessity. That would be the fear, right? Uh, right, the, of course of it's the fear. Masses. Of course. Well, the desperate—I mean, if, the, if you have desperate people, right? I mean, it's not irrational to think no, they're going to sure. take the property sure. of those who have it. And what he says is, look— this is America. If you don't have property, you'll get it. <laughs> right. Because it's available. The opportunities are here. The West is opening up. Now, it's another matter, but the West is opening up. And everybody's going to have property. So just give them the right. And they're all going to be protective of property mm-hmm. because virtually everybody is in a position eventually to have it. Whereas in Europe, in England, or in Germany, mm-hmm. or wherever, the of course, the situation is different. There's no assumption mm-hmm. that the right. masses will ever own property, and yet they do extend the franchise for various, mm-hmm. I'd say, strategic reasons, right? In Britain, it seems like, I believe it's Gladstone that uh, extends the franchise in 1860s, I think. Yeah, there's a first extension in 32, right, and, and, then, and then in the 60s. And, and, uh, and it yeah. seems to be a political strategy, right, that mm-hmm. these politicians think they'll mm-hmm. be able to 
win more support, win elections, have power if they enfranchise the masses. And ironically, in Germany, Bismarck thought the same. He thought that by enfranchising the working classes and the peasantry, he would support the monarchy. He was completely wrong. Well, but he creates the welfare state, right? I mean, he creates his, the model welfare state, and that would fit perfectly with that's this, his right? subsequent that, attempt that's, to try and put the toothpaste yeah. back in the tube, I would yeah. say. Well, okay, maybe so. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting that in the U.S., there's this appeal to a specifically American context as a justification for the extension Absolutely. You know, the political development people say you've really got to understand America's really different Mm -hmm. from Europe in a way. And it's because in Europe, the state was first built and then it was democratized. Right. Americans were democratic. And they're still sort of thinking about whether to build the state. Right. Good <laughs> you know, point. Well, I mean, I think it's sort of built Good now, point. but uh, it's only one party that kind of supports it and the other one's kind of against it. And uh-huh. it might flip, you know, uh-huh. uh, on all of that. And, and this is a connection to common law, right? It's democracy understood as people have in charge of their own lives. You know, that's what the rights that common law protects allows them to do. That's what they do in the jury. That, together, mm-hmm. but they do it in a jury. Now, the jury isn't quite like democracy because a jury verdict has to be unanimous. Veto power, yeah. So when you talk about civil or keeping it civil, this is a, you know, I like to say even today, you know, polarized as we are, juries come down with verdicts every day mm-hmm. and they've, they're unanimous. In fact, the courts finally recovered a little blip when the courts allowed juries to be non-unanimous and now... Uh, the Supreme Court a few years ago went back to the old unanimity requirement. Yeah, that's a very good point. I was just um, this morning talking to a friend and colleague of mine at George Mason University at the Mercatus Center, Ben Klutzay. He's running this project on pluralism and polarization, Mm -hmm. and they're doing focus groups all across the country asking very contentious questions, the most contentious questions of these people with all sorts of different partisanship and political opinions. He said on the whole... In the vast majority of cases, when confronted with people with opposing opinions face to face in small or medium sized groups, the debates are extremely polite. They're extremely civil. People are very careful about upsetting or being rude to one another, etc. And I think that maybe that's kind of what the juries are like potentially as well, right? Well, right. I mean, we professors are used to insulting each other. Uh, in person, maybe. And, and uh, via anonymous peer review, by the way. Well, yes, I, right. I, I don't know about right. you. I get, I get my best insults anonymously. Yeah. To anyone I, who's listening, thank you. Is, I appreciate is, it. Is peer review still anonymous? I, uh, it's interesting to hear. So It seems uh, to, it, it is yeah, for me. I don't know way. if it is yes, for them. right. You haven't figured them out yet. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, but Americans know, I mean, there's always been a good bit of pluralism in American mm-hmm. society. I mean, yes, the New England towns were a bit more uniform in some ways in different parts of the country were more uniform, and the South had this great divide, uh, of course, according to the races eventually. And uh, although even there, there's a little more variety because of the slaveholders and the non-slaveholders and the Scots up in the hills and and free blacks in some of the states, at least early on. So you don't really buy this argument that we're living in a unique moment of extreme political polarization? Well, no, and at least one area where it's kind of fun to talk about it and to measure it is on the question of religion, right? Because now it's easy to see Americans have great religious diversity. We have a large Muslim population. uh, But 
at the time of the founding, they took the differences between different Protestant denominations right. very, very right. seriously. Right. And then Protestant Catholic was at least mm-hmm. as contentious on the whole as Christian Muslim is today. And or, so, uh, was it as contentious as Republicans and I, Democrats I today, so. or even more so? Or progressive Democrats oh, I think so. I and think conservative you could, Republicans? Yeah, you or? could probably find, I bet you could find all of that. Mm. You know, and what's so interesting is that for all the differences in the parties, you know, so for example, the class of free workers were Republicans back at the time of the Civil War, and then they got organized by the Democrats in the 20th century, and now from Reagan and Trump seemed to be able to win mm-hmm. by bringing them bring somehow back in. Back into and the... so the class sort of flip and divide between sure. the parties. But the one thing you can be sure about is that the more conservative Christians always tended to be Federalists and then Whigs and then Republicans, and the uh, the more unorthodox tended to towards the Democrats, and so new groups would come in and gravitate towards the Democrats, mm-hmm. and yet as these sort of orthodox, unorthodox, or heterodox on the religious matter, as these would develop, you'll find the more orthodox set towards the <laughs> the Republicans uh-huh. or whatever, and so so there is a kind of uh, a texture to the American party system where religion enters into it. And I think all the pluralities do, you Mm -hmm. know, I mean, all the differences of ethnicity. But, you know, in that sense, American democracy, I think, has... This is where Tocqueville's brilliance really shows up. American democracy really is something that's learned practically. Hmm. And it's learned by people having some property and having interests and sort of making, because there's a lot of room to make choices about how you live in America. Mm -hmm. And you better make a choice because there is no default position. The default position is things going to fall apart and (laughs) there might not be anybody who's going to take care of you unless Mm -hmm. you got family and uh, they're going to want something if they take care of you. So expect something on the whole. And so there'll be churches, you know, but then they'll bring you in, et cetera. And in this whole (laughs) mishmash, as it were, this whole complexity, I think that's been the character of America from the very beginning. And it just repeats itself in new ways at new times. One thing that strikes me about this divergence, constitutional divergence between the U.S. and Britain and the British colonies is the role of the parliament. I mean, absolutely. when I grew up in New Zealand, Things have changed subsequently significantly, but New Zealand was uh, regarded by Arendt Leipart, this famous political scientist, as the most pure Westminster democracy in the world. We had a single chamber of parliament elected in single member districts, right, first past the post. We had no judicial review, no Supreme Court. There was no upper house of parliament. They'd, they actually abolished the New Zealand upper house of parliament, I think, in the 50s. And so if basically if you controlled... If you won the election, if you could control your party, if you control cabinet, you had a complete dictatorship and the entire country would do whatever you wanted until about 1996. And so parliament was, and it still is, a pretty raucous place. And it's where politics is played out, right? You have select committee meetings where every little detail of every policy has gone over and thousands of people submit letters. And I think people at least pretend to read them. The same was true in Britain. I mean, when I lived in England from 2014 to 2017, I'd follow the parliamentary debates about Brexit, about I remember when Jeremy Corbyn came in and was completely inept in the Prime Minister's questions and Theresa May would kind of make a fool of him and that became almost like a national spectacle to watch these contests in Parliament. Obviously, old, uh, what's his name, Boris Johnson, to come to another short-lived recent British Prime Minister, he, he loved to get up and give very grand speeches in Parliament. And then when I look 
at the US Congress, I see these pictures from C-SPAN because, of course, I never actually would listen, watch a debate in Congress because nothing seems to happen. And there's just a person standing there in an empty room with a clock ticking down saying how much longer he has to talk. Similar to the German Bundestag, by the way, where I once worked as an intern as a very young student. How on earth did it come to be that, A, the American Congress, the lower house, is essentially just a talk shop where nothing seems to get debated. And I hear these stories, they don't even read the legislation before they pass it, right? They have no idea what they're voting on, which could never happen in a British or New Zealand parliament. The select committees go through it with a really fine-tooth comb. And B, on the other hand, you have this unelected body, the Supreme Court, that's taking all these incredibly contentious political decisions. For me, as someone from a much more robust parliamentary system, it's always been kind of jarring, the comparison. Right. The Americans considered, at the time of the revolution, they considered the parliament the enemy. In fact, the beginning stages of the revolution, everything is phrased as an appeal to the king huh. against the parliament. Now, is this sour grapes because they don't have representatives right. in parliament? Yes, right, of course. So it's not that they object to parliament as such. No, they had their own parliaments. Their right. view was that each of these colonial assemblies was a kind of parliament. It had as now, much legitimacy as Westminster. Parliament thought this was crazy. Of course. I mean, I mean they just thought that was ridiculous. Well, they but, were sitting in a grand palace in the biggest city in the world at the center of the world's greatest uh, empire, and these Americans were sitting in wooden sitting shacks. in the edge of the woods. Yeah. That's right. And the Americans' view was, no, these assemblies are making law for mm-hmm. us and our connection to the king. They developed a whole theory. In fact, they developed what became the theory of the British Commonwealth later on. Which is a uh, more direct connection. Is through the executive. The elected, right. Right. The elected bodies have a more direct connection to the sovereign as the he- symbolic head of state almost, which right. is how we still see the Queen and yeah. New Zealand, the King, sorry. Now. Right. And so that notion that it was only through the executive that you had the connection. Hmm. That's what the Americans are arguing. Isn't Jefferson that a great, argues isn't that, a great that. Wilson, yeah, it's very interesting. And the British don't buy it. You know, the 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 the, the Parliament is uh, in, in Westminster can govern the colonies. Blackstone says so in the chapter the Americans chose <laughs> not to read, and, or, or they you know or they read it, and that's why they didn't fully trust Blackstone. Uh, like well, the, but the British, you know, at this point, I assume, are spending quite a lot of money to maintain trade links to North America to maintain the Navy, and they probably felt that they had they some were owed sort something. of... Yes. Right. Well, that's the whole issue. It plays out because after the French and... What we call the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, the British say, okay, look, we just defended you. You owe us some money for that. And the Americans' view was, well, whether or not we owe you money... By the way, we're helping to enrich your empire... But the whole point is, you can't tax us, right? You can't tell us what we owe you. At least you can't put a direct tax. You might be able to requisition it. When the Americans first set up their first constitution, the Articles of Confederation, mm-hmm. that's how the central power worked. They mm-hmm. would tell each state what they thought it owed, and they would pay or not pay or dispute it. And uh, they realized that system didn't wholly work. But what they couldn't do... The initial Congress couldn't do this, and certainly Parliament couldn't do it, said the Americans, was hmm. tax us directly, even if it was a little tax on a luxury item like tea. And so was it always foreseen that the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate would not have the same deliberative sort of role that they do in England? Oh, that was in, intended, in, right. In England oh, or in the rest oh. of the Commonwealth. I mean... Was it yeah, always intended from the very start? We don't see these raucous debates. We don't see these things really being hashed out 
on the floor of the House of Representatives, you know, across the aisle like you yeah. do in uh, in Westminster. That's or a great question. Canberra or Wellington or wherever. That's a, that's a great question. The early days, there, there was a kind of moment that's often looked back to by historians of Congress when you had famous orators in uh-huh. Congress. And so that would be in the days of the early republic. And they often speak of the great triumvirate, this book by this name, but but it's generally coming to the discourse about the early republic. Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, and Daniel Webster. So one from the north, one from the middle west, Clay, and then one from the south, Calhoun. Mm-hmm. And apparently they would give great speeches on the on the floor, which were published in the same way that parliamentary mm-hmm. speeches would have been. And I think they would have been seen as the American Burke or the American uh-huh. uh, whatever it would be. But there's no one like that after the Civil War who sort of commands attention in the same way. Maybe it's because the bodies have grown bigger, but it's also maybe because it is true. American legislation becomes a kind of negotiation among all these different interests. And that is suggested already in Federalist Paper Number 10 by James Madison, his sort of brilliant analysis of how this Constitution is going to work. Mm-hmm. It's going to be about working out the interests of different parts of a tremendously pluralistic country. And, you know, the, the sort of great moral debates, those would happen within the states, mostly. Right. Now, there's slavery, right? And so that's the big issue, and Calhoun is certainly speaking about it, and Webster's sort of speaking about it from the other side, although always speaking of union first. And Clay is trying to run the compromise hmm. with the others. And so at that time, you do have that kind of national debate. But if the subject is the regulation of interests, uh, it, it's not in—and the interests aren't seen as great class interests, but the interests of this community and that community. Right. And when there's class, I guess in part just because it's such a big country, again, this was intended from the beginning. They wanted it to grow. I think they figured that everyone will have a class interest, but he'll also have a local interest. Mm. And, you know, you want the steel industry to be strong in Pennsylvania. And so it's not just workers versus management, because it might well be that someone out in another part of the country, I don't know, the copper miners in Arizona, actually want steel to (laughs) decline in relation to uh, whatever alloy they're introducing, et cetera, et cetera. So the nationalization of debates in this way and the nationalization of interest groups wasn't necessarily foreseen at the time of the founding. There were some debates they'd seen, but I don't think they expected it then. And we don't have it now in a way, except outside of the halls of Congress, right? Mm. So as you say, the great debates don't take place there because in a way they're too big, the Congresses, and they're they're also still very much tied to their states. Mm-hmm. I mean, the states are independent political communities. That's one of the keys for understanding America. That is to say they have their own Republican governments. They are not subsidiaries of the federal government. But we do end up with the situation I mean, it seems to me relatively frequently in the United States that these big national decisions end up getting decided by the Supreme Court. Okay, yeah, right. So the Supreme Court. Well, of course, the Supreme Court and its power of constitutional review is unimaginable without the common law background in a way, right? Because it's you can read through the Constitution. There's nothing that says Supreme Court has the power to decide fundamental questions or even fundamental questions of law, right? It's the argument that's made is a pure common law type argument. It says, look at the common law. If you had two statutes that contradicted each other, first of all, it's the capacity of judges to figure out if there really is a contradiction. You can Mm -hmm. try to reconcile them. But if you can't, if they just contradict each other, then 
you invoke the rule. And the rule was the more recent statute overrides the earlier statute. But if you've got, as it were, statutes of different levels of authority, a constitution on the one hand and then Mm -hmm. your ordinary statutes on the other hand, first of all, you got to figure out, is there really a contradiction? Can you reconcile them? But if you can't, then the constitution has prior authority. And it's all just argued out as a matter of logic. The nature Mm -hmm. and the reason of the thing, says Hamilton, is what determines it. It's not... uh, Uh, So the argument's there from the beginning, but it's never put in writing. So here's the irony of judicial review, right? It's this unwritten power of the court to invoke the authority of a written constitution. Mm -hmm. Although the constitution's pretty general, a lot of the terms happen to be from the common law. (laughs) You have to know the law in order to know what they mean to some extent. They look at precedent as if it's a common law system, even in constitutional cases, although you always have the text, the authoritative text to go back to. You know, the United States has gone through periods where the court is more or less instrumental in deciding major cases. I mean, we're in this remarkable moment now where a lot of that is happening very quickly mm-hmm. in these sort of preliminary injunctions. And all of that, Congress can change. I mean, the whole power of the court to issue injunctions is entirely determined by Congress. And if they wanted to, they could take control of that again. Do you think the Congress would do that? No, because on the whole, uh, often, at least this is sort of the standard reading, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, is that Congress is perfectly happy to punt questions to the court. Very interesting. Well, Jim, we have reached the end of our time on the podcast, and so I'm going to ask you a question which we ask all of our podcast guests. It's a very simple question, which is, if you were going to recommend a book or a film or a podcast or anything to our listeners, on, particularly on the topic of civil discourse and debate, what would that be? You know, one film. I'll pick a film. Mm-hmm, great. Uh, because I've been doing a little film series great. at LSU. And one film that was really interesting was about Parliament. And it was the film called Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. And it's about the movement towards the abolition of the slave trade in Parliament. I don't know that it speaks to common law, but it does speak to the question of civility, and it certainly speaks to the the question of how morality and interest intersect in complicated and surprising but ultimately gripping ways in political life. And it's got Benedict Cumberbatch. There right? you go. Is that Great. his name? Uh, he's in it, so it's a... Uh, It's got some star power to a film suggestion. I love it. Thank you very much. And thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course.